Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This morning I'm going to speak on marriage. And I, I want to make a caution before I do that. If, if I ever preach on a subject that's geared towards just a select group of people in the auditorium, what tends to happen is those of you that aren't in that category have a tendency to say, this doesn't apply to me. And you, so you zone out. And so I want to encourage you not to do that, okay? Some of you in here are not married, but you will be someday. So these, these things that we're going to talk about are important for you to understand. Some of you interact, you're not married, but you interact with people on a daily basis who are, and you have the opportunity to encourage them uh, to live their marriages the way that we're going to talk about. And some of you, maybe it doesn't apply either of those, and you're, you're not married, but I would encourage you to pray for those that are, that they live according to the way God would want them to live. And so I encourage you to uh, be attentive this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, and I will uh, read the passage for you starting in verse 22 and down to the end of the chapter. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'll help us to understand this text, not to glance over it as one we've heard many times, but to look and hear and be attentive to something new that you may have for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I would like to continue the series that I've been preaching for a couple months now on the gospel. And specifically, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the impact of the gospel. When we really believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, it'll change our life in so many ways, not just our eternal security. When I, when I think about this passage, immediately uh, I'm impressed with three observations. I want to share those with you personal observations. First of all, I am thankful for my wife. Um, and many of you, um, you know, would say that as husbands, but you're not up here, so I get to say it. Uh, we've been married for 19 years, and I am thankful for her faithfulness. I'm thankful for her kindness. I am thankful for her friendship. Some will say to me, you know, you have a tough job being pastor. I will say this uh, without a doubt. I mean this that the toughest job in this church is not mine, it's my wife's. I get accolades and praises and yet criticisms. She just gets the criticisms. And so I am, uh, I am so thankful that she has been faithful to me 
and continues to be that. The second observation that I want to make is that I still got a long way to go as a husband. I'm still learning and growing and, and developing and trying to be the kind of man that God wants me to be. And I pray that God will continue to allow me to do that. The third observation is, as we talk about the gospel, the gospel is, is absolutely central to marriage. The gospel is absolutely essential to a good marriage. You know, books may help. In fact, there are many out there that are in fantastic books on marriage. I have a library filled with them. Marriage retreats are profitable. Some of them, many of them are. Counseling is a gift from God to many couples, and oftentimes it changes their lives. But what I would remind you of this morning is that the most fundamental, the most important, the most basic, the most God-glorifying, the most essential ingredient in every marriage is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This morning, I have three primary goals as we go through this passage. First, I want to impress upon you the importance of the gospel in marriage, that the good news of Jesus Christ must be the essential element of your marriage. Second, I want there to be obedience to the gospel. I believe that every couple in this room wants to obey God, but I I also understand that it's a challenge. John MacArthur said this about marriage. He said, many marriages begin in a euphoric state of love and bliss. We see that, don't we? You go to a wedding and you see this euphoric state of love and bliss. But then he says this, it gradually descends at varying rates into a state of war characterized by bickering, bitterness, discontentment, unforgiveness, punctuated all along the way by moments of a truce. I think that's a lot of times what marriage is, and I think many of you would probably agree with that. And I'm sure by the grace of God that there are homes here today that have a rock-solid marriage. Homes here today that your marriage is, is, is incredible, and it's been that way for many years. Or maybe you've gone through trials, and you've gotten to that point where you're at today, and you thank God for your solid marriage. But I'm sure at the same time, there are homes represented here this morning that you're teetering on the brink. And you're really not sure which way it's going to go. The reality is between the rock-solid marriages and those homes that are on the brink is where the majority of us probably lie. Marriages that have problems but are doing okay. What I want to encourage you with this morning is whether your marriage has failed in the past or whether your marriage is failing now, or whether your marriage is fantastic, but the reality is someday in the future that you're not even aware of, your marriage will suffer and fail. I want to encourage you that you can find forgiveness in the grace of God, and that you can find healing. I want to look at two easy aspects this morning, really, Um, and under that we'll have some other points. But the first one is I want to look at the mystery of the gospel in marriage. Look, look in your Bible again, and I'm actually going to skip to the end of this, uh, of this passage and look in verse 31. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. You'll notice that if, in your Bible that verse 31 is in quotation marks. That is because it is a quote from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. You see it there. It's almost word for word. 
forward what we see here in Ephesians chapter 5. This passage in Genesis is where Adam is rejoicing over his wife. He's, he's thrilled because God has given him a wife. And, and God had taken from Adam the rib. And from that he had made woman, Eve. And, and he brought them together. It's a fantastic passage where God brings them together. And he creates the marriage relationship. And so in Genesis, this verse is entirely about marriage and the marriage relationship. But I want you to notice what Paul does in verse 31 and verse 32. So Paul in verse 31 says, here's what God said in Genesis, and here's what was the statement about marriage in Genesis. But then I want you to notice what Paul does in verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound. He says in this passage, it's, it's, it's profound, it's a mystery. What is that mystery he's referring to? I think, I think he's referring uh, to the previous verse where he talks about this marriage relationship, and, and he, that, that's what he's referring to. But then he says this, look at verse 32 again. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying, what does he mean by that? Do you remember a couple years ago we did a study on the Sermon on the Mount? And, and lodged in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is this section where while Jesus is speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, he uses six times, he uses a teaching tool. He says this, uh, he's pe- teaching and he says, you have heard that it was said. Remember that? He says things like, you have heard that it was said that uh, you shall love your enemy. And then he says, but I say, and he expands upon it. That's what, that's what Paul is doing in this passage. He's saying this. He's saying, God told us you shall leave your father and your mother. And he says, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, this mystery is profound. But I am saying, in other words, he's saying, but I, I want to give you, he goes, I think there's a deeper level to this than just a marriage discussion. Um, and, and that's what he begins telling us. And so what what is he telling us? First thing I want you to notice is he says the mystery of the gospel in marriage is ultimate. What do I mean by that? Paul understood that Genesis 2.24, in its context, is referring to the union between a husband and wife. He got that. But what Paul is doing, he's not ignoring the traditional interpretation of that passage, but he's simply adding something to it. Now, we're not supposed to add to Scripture, but Paul had that right because of being the apostle and the gift of the apostle. God allowed him to do that. And so he is adding to that traditional interpretation, and he is saying that there is something greater than just the marriage relationship. What he is saying is that the essence of marriage is not found primarily in companionship, in sexual union, in happiness, or in personal fulfillment. Even though marriage does all those things, he is saying that the essence of marriage is found in the mystery of the relationship between the church and Christ. To say it another way, Paul is saying that the relationship between the Christ and the church is of greater importance not the marriage relationship. He's, he's exalting that relationship. I think we often think that when we come to this passage that Paul was writing along in this passage and he begins to talk about relationships and he comes to the relationship of husband and, husband and wife and he's sitting there and he's, he's writing along and he goes, ah, how do I illustrate this? Uh, you know what, I'll illustrate it with Christ and the church. And that's not what he's doing here. Okay, he is not using this as an illustration. What he is doing is this. What Paul is saying is that the more important thing 
is Christ and the church, and that marriage is to be a picture of Christ and the church. You begin seeing as we go through this why I love that we honor these couples that were up here earlier. Because you so reflect Christ and the church. And that is what God is asking us to do. What that means is that every marriage is rep- that is represented in this room, our marriages are intended to be a parable of the gospel. Our, te- our, our marriages are intended to be a, a, a show to the world around us of what Jesus Christ did. Every marriage in this room is meant to point to the truth of a crucified and risen Savior who died because of the love for his church and is redeeming him or, or the church unto himself. Every marriage is meant to be, by the grace of God, the re- best reflection of Christ in the church. That's what you're supposed to do. Pastor John Piper said this, marriage is not mainly about being or staying in love. It's mainly about telling the truth with our lives. Marriage is a pointer towards the glory of Christ and the church. It's about portraying something true about Jesus Christ and the way that he relates to his people. It's about showing in real life the glory of the gospel. Which means that every wife in here is to portray to the world a church that depends on, a church that serves, a church that finds its life and glory in Christ. Wives, you're supposed to display that. And every husband is intended in marriage to portray Christ to the world. A Savior who at great cost purchased a church in love and perfects that church in that same love. Husbands, That's why we will never arrive. That's a huge task. The ultimate goal for all marriages is to picture this mystery. The intimate, vital, loving union between Christ and the church. That is why I believe that we need to hold marriage to a high esteem. But we need to give it its right place because marriage is not the ultimate. The gospel is the ultimate. And we reflect that in our marriages. So we see the marriage, the mystery of the gospel in marriage is ultimate. But secondly, the mystery of the gospel in marriage is profound. Look at verse 32 again. He says, this mystery is profound. What's what's the big deal? In other words, it's great. It is loaded with significance. Your marriage, I think uh, we sometimes forget this, your marriage is loaded with significance. It's not just about you and your spouse. It's not just about you, your spouse, and your kids. It is loaded with significance to the world around us. That is why it is so important that we accurately display the relationship between Christ and the church. It's a must that we do that. But why? Why? couple of things, and these aren't in your notes. A couple of reasons why I believe gospel-centered marriages are so important. First of all, gospel-centered marriages are so important because they exalt the Savior. Let me show you what I mean by this. Look in your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 5. We're there, but I want, I want you to look at the whole context of this passage. Look at verse 
15. 15 verse 15 is kind of the beginning of a new section that uh, Paul is writing. And look what he says in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Paul is telling the church in Ephesus, hey, you need to be careful how you are walking. That means how you are living your Christian life. Notice why he says it. Look at verse 16. Making the best use of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. See, Paul was writing to a group of people, to a church, and he's telling them, listen, we live in a horrible, wicked time. Guess what? It hasn't improved since the time of Paul. We still live in a horrible, wicked time. Now, I want you to jump down and look at what he says in uh, the end of this section. We come down and he talks about the marriage relationship. He talks about the relationship between children and parents. He talks about the relationship between servants and their master. And then we come down all the way down to chapter 6 and verse 10. Notice what he says there. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In other words, notice what he did in this context of the whole story here, in the context of all of it, buried in there between here, the days are evil and hey, watch out because there's the schemes of the devil is our marriage relationship. See, because we need to understand that every marriage is under attack. Every marriage in this room is under attack. You're under attack in two ways. You're under attack from within because we're wicked people. You know what? I, I, could, I could in and of myself destroy my marriage because I'm a wicked guy. If it wasn't for the grace of God. But not only from within, but from without. The world is attacking marriages all over the place. But the greater truth, as we look at this context of this passage, the greater truth is that we have a Savior who is greater than any attack Satan can throw our way. The greater truth throughout this passage is that God is over. Look back at Ephesians chapter 1, if you will, for a moment. Ephesians chapter 1. The greater context of this of this whole book in, in Ephesians is that, that God is greater. And look what it says in Ephesians 1, and starting in verse 20, he's talking about God. He says that he, that God, worked in his great might, excuse me, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above. I want you to notice that. He doesn't say just a little above. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. What is that talking about? Those rule and authority and power and dominion are talking about not just earthly uh, rule, but also demonic. And the idea that he's given across there is that Jesus Christ rules over everything. There is nothing that is not under the authority and power of Jesus Christ. And so when he tells us, you know what, your marriage is being attacked on all sides, what, what it's saying is this, when we live a life, when we live a marriage that is pleasing to God and is centered on the gospel, you know what we say? We say our God is more powerful than any Satan and satanic attack. So what that means to us practically is that when our marriages reflect Christ and, 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 the cult, um, and to the culture around us, they proclaim the enemy, to the enemy, Satan, the absolute authority and supremacy of Christ. When we align ourselves with the word has for us in terms of husbands and wives, we are sending a signal by the grace of God 
to every demon that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone reigns supreme. But on the other side, when we when we allow our marriages to fall prey to the attacks of Satan, we display to a world around us that our God is not big enough. Secondly, not only uh, do we does gospel-centered marriage exalt our Savior, but secondly, it enhances our witness. Think about how marriage is torn apart in our culture. Television and magazines and media of any kind celebrate everything but marriage. Spouses are belittled in our world. Oftentimes in public. And marriage has been perverted into something that it was never intended to be. But in marriage, we have an opportunity to display something different to a world that is watching. It does not mean that we don't give ourselves to the the verbal proclamation of the gospel. What it does mean is this. When you speak up about the gospel, our credibility is enhanced. doesn't mean, you know, if your marriage here today is not what you wish it was, it does not mean that you cannot be a gospel witness. But for those that your, your marriage is glorifying God, you're enhancing your witness. And it reflects something totally different to the world around us than what people are accustomed to seeing. So we see that marriage is intended to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. The question is, how do we do that? I want to take the next few moments and talk about the marks of the gospel in marriage. What does that look like? And there's two sides to that. First of all, a glad, submissive wife. Now, ladies, I know that when I begin saying this, you think, oh, here we go again. Some guy up there telling me how to be a submissive wife. But I want you to listen closely. Because I think what the world has done is the world has perverted this teaching. Because the world has caused us and caused you as ladies to think this. Hey, I'm a woman and I have equal rights to my husband. And so therefore, I have no reason that I need to submit. And what we've done is we've perverted Scripture into thinking that somehow Scripture is belittling you as women. And that is not the case. The Bible tells us that men and women are created equal in the sight of God. Both are image bearers of God. When God said that we are created in the image of God, he didn't say, man, you're created and women, you're not. No, we're both created in the image of God. That's a beautiful thing and there's equality in that. We're both one in Christ. It does not matter if you're man or woman, you're one in Christ. Matthew Henry talks about it this way. He says, the the woman was made out of, was made of the rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor made out of his feet to be trampled on him, but by his side to be his equal. Now, that's not a quote from Genesis, but I think that it's something that captures the essence of what we're talking about. It's not that the husband is up here and the wives are down here or the other way around. We're equal, but there is a distinction in the way that we relate to each other. 
And so in this passage, in verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's a distinction. There's three aspects that I want you to notice in this passage. First of all, submission is willing. Now, it's something interesting from, uh, from history in this text. I want you to understand is that um, during the time of Paul and during the time of the apostles, there was, there was a number of books and, and other um, guidelines and rule books written about what marriages were supposed to be like. And what was interesting in, in almost every single one of those books, it's always the husband is always addressed and never the wife. Because in that culture, the wives were belittled. But what Paul is doing something very unique here because what Paul is doing is he's saying, hey, um, that's not the way it's supposed to be. There's equality. So we're, uh, when we look at this passage, we notice that submission is willing. How, you say, how do you see that? Let me, let me explain something to you. Uh, you look at the voice of the verb. What is the voice of the verb? And in the English language, we have typically two voices. We have the active and we have the passive. Let, let me explain what that means. If I was to say, the boy hit the ball, you know, your kid's out playing baseball and the boy hits the ball, that's active. The boy is doing the action. He is hitting the ball. Now, if I was to say uh, this way, the boy boy was hit by the ball, okay? That's passive. The boy just stood there and on the top of his head, he got hit by a ball, okay? That's passive. And in the English language, we understand that. There's those two, the active, the passive. What's interesting about the Greek language, in the Greek languages, there's a third voice. It's what's called the middle voice. You say, what's that all about? The middle voice is this, that there is an active element of that where, where the person is doing the action by oneself to oneself. In other words, he's doing it to himself. What's interesting in this passage when it says, wives submit, that word submit is in the middle voice. In other words, wives, you are to submit yourself by yourself, not by the will of another. Husbands, this is, this is for you. When, when we say wives submit, it's not your responsibility to make your wife submit. It's theirs. It's their responsibility to say, you know what, I have the ability to do this, and so I am going to place myself under you and submit to you. I am going to do that. It's a willingness that says, hey, it is not something that I'm going to be forced to do. Paul is speaking here about a voluntary, willing submission. And think about it. If our marriages are to reflect Christ in the church, it is not as though the church is being dragged about kicking and screaming in obedience to God. God demands our obedience, but God allows us to have the free will to choose to obey. And in marriage, it should be the same. And God wants us to, to lead we want, uh, we want to follow everywhere God would lead us as, as Christ and the church, and that is the same idea. That is the very same concept that is pictured here as a husband is leading. There is a very glad and willing wife that is submitting behind him, alongside of him. So we see, first of all, submission is willing. Second one I wanted you to look at is submission is reverent. Notice, if you will, verse 22 again. He says, wives, submit as you do it, to your own husbands as to the Lord. He adds a little qualifier. Now, some take this, interpret this, that a wife is to submit to her husband as if he is the Lord. That is not what it says. <laughs> I am not my wife's Lord. 
She's never called me that and never will, unless she's mocking me, and that might come out. But I think what, is, what Paul is intending to communicate here to wives is that part of your obedience to God is to submit to your husband. That if you are going to live in full obedience to God, that a part of that is you are going to submit to the man that God has placed in your life. Here's the thing, ladies. Some husbands, I know this is going to shock you, some husbands make dumb decisions. I would ask for a show of hands, but I don't think that would be very submissive for you to raise your hands and acknowledge that your husbands make dumb decisions. Some husbands make dumb decisions. Some husbands say dumb things. It's possible I've said some up here today. Some husbands do dumb things. But I want to remind you from this verse, verse 22, that it is not the worth of your husband that calls for submission, but the worth of your Savior that calls for submission. Ladies, it is not because he is a guy that is is worth submitting to. It's because God asks you to. Look, if you will, at verse 33 of this passage. He, he, he adds to it. He says, the second part of verse 33, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ladies, I know sometimes it's not easy. But God calls you to do that. Why? Because you're reflecting Christ in the church. Third, submission is comprehensive. Look at verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, oh, you don't want to read those words, in everything. In everything. I want you to understand that does not, that does not include, uh, Jeremy Frazier actually talked about this last week, that does not include sinful behavior. God is not calling you to submit to your husband as if he, if he is asking you to do something that is sinful. Nor does it mean in any way that you submit to all men, because it says to your husband. But in all things, in all ways, in all seasons, in all attitudes, in all dispositions, there should be a yielding, a glad-hearted submission to your husband. So here is a wife that no matter the circumstance, no matter the difficulty, because of the gospel in and through her life, yields herself in submission to her husband. Not only outwardly, but also internally, because she has a heart that it gladly submits to her husband as obedience to her God. I hope you see how the gospel is just all through our marriage relationships. Secondly, not only a glad, submissive wife, but a sacrificial Loving husbands. Now, guys, this is hard. Because in, in, this, in this illustration of Christ in the church, we, our, our example is Christ. And that's difficult. But I think it's interesting as we begin, we, we look at, you know, uh, 
the command that God gave wives to submit, and then we lead into what God said to husbands. And I think it's interesting what he says, because you might think that Paul would then tell husbands, hey, wives, you're to submit. You might think logically that God would say to husbands, husband, I, I want you to lead. But he doesn't say that. Because I think for men, our natural tendency is to lead. In fact, so much so that our natural tendency is to, to force our wives into submission. But that's, that's why God comes and says, hey, I have a different command for you, husbands. He says, husbands, I want you to love. In fact, four times in this passage it says that. Look, if you will, look, look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Look at verse 28, twice in this passage. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. The end of the verse, he who loves his wife. And then down verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife. We see what it's saying there? We are to love our wives. And so true love is what God is commanding for us as husbands towards our wives. What does that look like? There's four characteristics. First of all, true love is costly. Look what it says in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I think this is difficult for us to get our minds around loving this way. But what I wanted to show you is I I don't think it's difficult for us to get our minds around loving in a way that leads to protecting our wife from harm. But I don't think that's what it's talking about here. One pastor said this, that, that loving your wife means dying to yourself. Explained it this way. He said, when, when she misunderstands you, when your desires are not interesting to her, when your advice is disregarded by her and your opinions are ridiculed, when you are abused, when you are mistreated, and yet you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, that is dying to oneself. When you are content with any food, any clothing, any house, any location, as long as provision is made for her, that is is dying to self, when you never care to pursue uh, stuff for yourself, but instead seek her own good, her interest, her praise, that is dying to self. When you see her prosper and reach goals that you desired for yourself, and you can honestly rejoice with her, that is dying to self. When you receive correction and reproof from your wife and humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, feeling no resentment rising within your heart, that is dying to self. I think most husbands in this room would gladly give our bodies and lay down our, wives, our lives to protect our wives. A few years ago, I was just talking about this with someone this morning. A few years ago, someone broke into our house when my wife was home and the individual had a gun. And thankfully, he, he ran and fled. But I remember when my wife called me and told me about it. I was here at work and she called me and told me what, what happened. You know what goes through your mind as a husband? I will beat him to pieces. That's what goes through your mind. And as husbands, we get that. We're willing to, to physically do whatever it takes to protect our wives. But I doubt that many of you would agree with what the author said, or all of us would agree anyway, with what the author said, that dying to self means all kinds of daily decisions where we sacrifice completely. Where we give up of our own desires where we willingly lay down our desire to get a boat in honor of something that our wife wants. 
Will we willingly put aside uh, the desire to go hang out with a friend because your wife wants to spend time with you? Because true love is costly. And here in this passage, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And, and men, so often we will say this, Oh yeah, I would die for my wife, but, but I don't think that's all that's being asked. It's being asked to give up everything for her. Everything. True love is costly, but secondly, true love is unconditional. Look at verse 26 and 27. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then it says in the same way, husbands. It's talking about the relationship of Christ and the church, but I think it goes deeper than that because we're supposed to be a reflection of that. And so Christ would like to present this holy church before God. And what he's saying is is we're to reflect that. And so as husbands, we're supposed to be reflecting and presenting a holy wife before God. And this idea that on this passage comes from Ezekiel. You don't need to turn there. I'll put it on the screen. If you want to read it later, you can. But it's, it's an interesting passage that we don't have time to go through completely. But in this passage, the, the prophet Ezekiel is talking to the people of Israel who had rebelled against God. They'd turned their back on God, and God was comparing it to a marriage relationship. And he was talking about this unfaithful bride who, who was beaten and battered and, and, and living and, and just dirty. And notice what it says here about this. He says, then I bathed you with water. It's talking about the husband, but specifically it's talking about God. I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with the ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. See, what we see in Ezekiel chapter 16 is what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 5 is a love that exists, that persists, that is deep, that is intense, and despite the worth of the bride, loves. I want to be careful. I am not saying that that means the husband is more worthy than the bride because we already looked at that. But the point we're making here is the way that God loves his people is that he takes them at the point when they're the dirtiest and he picks them up and he cleans us off and he cleanses us and he washes away the filth and then he, and then he closes, clothes us in the most beautiful garment. And then he takes us and he says, look, here's my church. And God says to husbands, husbands, love your wives that way. Love them that much. It doesn't matter if your wife never submits. It's a love that's Unconditional. It doesn't matter if her body falls apart, if she gets out of shape, if her hair is long or short or colored or gray or falling out. It doesn't matter if a newer model comes along. It doesn't matter if she's bitter or mean-spirited or nagging or quarrelsome or really difficult to be around. 
doesn't matter because it's a love that's unconditional. That every day wakes up and says, you know what, I'm going to love despite. Not because I'm better. Because I'm reflecting my Savior who in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, while we were yet sinners, we were over here, we were filthy, we were dirty, yet Christ died for us. Love is costly, it's unconditional. I gotta hurry because I've gone a little long today, and I'm sorry. True love is purposeful. Look at verse 27 again, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Men, the true nature of our love should be such that it promotes the gospel in our wives. That it causes our wives to flourish in their relationship with God. But you know what the tragedy is? The tragedy is in in majority, and I say majority, I don't know, maybe it's only 51%, but in the majority of homes, Christian homes today in our world, the wives lead spiritually way more than their husbands do. I am not saying, guys, I am not saying that everyone has to be a theologian or a preacher or even a Sunday school teacher. What I am saying is you need to lead your family. And you need to be doing it in such a way that you you bring your wife to a position where she is being exalted through the gospel. The word of God needs to be central in your home. And we need to lead. Even if it's basic, we need to lead in everything we do in 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 our marriage, in our family. Your wife should not be the spiritual leader in your home. And if she is, you are not loving your wife the way that you should. And then finally, true love is gentle. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. You know, we don't usually get impatient with ourselves, do we? But we frequently get impatient with the things our wives do. In 1 Peter, it says this, Peter said, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. See, again, many times people look at this verse and say, oh, he's calling the wives the weaker, but if you notice, he's also saying that you're joint heirs. There's an equality there, but there's a difference in how we interact. Both of these passages are calling us as husbands to tenderly love our wives. Guys, if you're gruff and angry and mean to your wife, there's a problem. You need to make it right with God and with your wife. I want to close with two, two thoughts and two passages and we'll be done. I know that as I speak this message, there are, there are those in this room, as I said earlier, that your marriage is either already fallen apart or is in the process of falling apart. And I know it's easy for you to sit there and and feel pain. And I want you to understand that there is is mercy in, in, in your relationship with God. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, I'm not going to dwell on this. Uh, Jeremy Frazier actually spoke on this this week. But in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. God loves you. Maybe your marriage has fallen apart and in some ways it seems irreconcilable. God still loves you. Maybe your marriage is teetering. There is hope in the mercy of God. And how do we do it? Look back in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The reality is, is how do we live our life? There's, there's no mistake that this verse preceded the verse on how we're supposed to interact in marriage because it is the foundation. You cannot live your life as a couple unless you are living through the strength of the Holy Spirit. So rely on his strength. what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to have a word of prayer. And uh, I, would, I would ask that um, during our, our, our invitation song, um, that you as couples take a few moments and pray together, okay? And, and be with your spouse and just ask God to help you in your marriage. Okay, so I'm going to pray, and then Pastor Nate will come up and lead us in a song. But as couples, take some time and pray together that God will work in your lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you have done. We are so grateful for your goodness to us. and Lord, I just pray that you help us in our marriage relationships. God, we want to reflect what Christ has done for us. So, Lord, I pray that you'll strengthen us. Lord, heal the marriages that need healing. Love those whose marriage has, has fallen apart. And give strength for us to have victory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.